If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 3, and we'll be making our way uh, through this psalm to this morning. When you get it, say amen. amen. All right, and it's on, the, it's on the screen in case you don't have it. Uh, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul that there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, ask your blessing right now for you to be with your people. Draw near to us by your spirit. Be our teacher. Would you go to war? There's a war that we don't see, but your scriptures remind us that we are in it, that there are wars in heavenly places. We know that Satan desires to sift us as wheat. We know that the enemy desires to take the word of God from being implanted into our hearts. And one of the ways that he does this is by choking out the word with the cares of this world. Father, I pray that by faith that you would give us for the next few moments a gaze upon the glory of Christ. That you would for the next few moments cause us to not think about anything other than you and your word and your kingdom. That you would allow your word to bear fruit. We pray that you would do this through your servants. In Christ's name, amen. So there are two brothers, and their name is Eric and Lyle Menendez. And the moment I say that name, some of you may know exactly who I'm talking about. And some of you are like, man, who are those kids? Who are those guys? Well, they made the news a few months ago because they uh, were separated for the past 22 years, and they were reunited of some sort. Uh, and they were separated when their parents were murdered in cold blood. And this happened in 1989. And for a couple of years, uh, the public was kind of locked in on this case because you saw these images of these two late teenagers grieving the loss of their parents. And then over time, uh, a couple years to be exact, that they were then indicted and they were then charged with murdering their parents. Their parents weren't killed by some strangers. They made a case that no, 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 you did it. You two did it and they were eventually charged in 1996 with murder. And one of the consequences of their behaviors with the way that they were able to plot and scheme and lie and cover and sort of do it together, one of the penalties or the punishments was that not only would they do life in prison without the chance of parole, I think they're challenging that, but they could also not serve their sentences together. And so they had them separated in two different prisons so that they would never see each other. It was part of their punishment. Well, uh, a couple months ago, uh, a judge allowed them, they're older now, and a judge allowed them to be moved into the same prison. And so, once again, it made the headline of the news. And I remember, I remember hearing about it, and I don't know if you were a parent at that time, but just the thought that your own two children 
will kill you brutally in cold blood because they wanted your estate, that they wanted your Porsches and they wanted to travel the world. And that's what it was like. That's why they did it. And then if you're a child, I know we're thinking like, man, that is like cold blooded. Well, here's the thing. That's the backdrop of our passage this morning. That Absalom is David's own son and he wants his life. He doesn't, he doesn't just want it. He's coming after David. And here's the thing. David knows he's for real. Now, how do we know that David knows that he's for real? Was well, because when you get back in 2 Samuel, Absalom has already killed his brother. He killed David's oldest son, whose name was Amnon. Absalom is like the third or fourth oldest son, but it's clear to David what he wants. He wants the throne. That's what he wants. And all he has to do is wipe away the firstborn, strike fear in the hearts of the other brothers, and then kill David. And he has a clear path. He's not to be reckoned with. So as we think about the Bible, I want us to think like this is a real family, right? This is like a, a real attempt of murder. This is like a real father coming to grips with my children hate me, that they loathe me, they, they detest me. And I want us to think through for a moment, like, what, is it, what does that feel like? What is it like to be David? But the way I wanted to work through it is just sort of say, okay, that there is congruency in the scriptures. And we know that this isn't ultimately about David. We know that the word of God is profitable and relevant for us. And so we have to sort of move this from this context into our own. And so I want us to think through this under four headings. And the first one is the fight that will surprise you. That's the first point. It's obvious in verse one when David says, oh, Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul that there is no salvation for him in God. That you go down to verse six. David talks about the many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. That that that, that is sort of propaganda that's spreading through uh, David's kingdom that he's a dead man. He's done. He's over with. There's a new sheriff in town. And, and David is actually surprised, right? He uses this phrase in verse one that many are rising against me. That phrase, it, it, it can mean a literal sort of rising as if you were asleep on a couch and you sort of, you rise to get up to go to the kitchen. The kitchen. You can use it that way. But more often than not, that when it's used in the, the Hebrew, that it's an idiom for something deeper, right? It's usually used in the context of, of war. It's, it, it's sort of battle imagery. And it means that, that there is this surprise attack that all of a sudden I'm sort of doing my life this way. And lo and behold, whoa, many are my enemies who have come out of nowhere. And, and that, I think that's getting at the heart of what David is saying, right? That, that, that he is caught off guard. And we know this because you, you kind of have to read this and have your finger on 2 Samuel. And I believe that superscript that's at the front of that psalm. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that this is the first psalm that starts the superscription. And I think that that's really crucial for understanding the backdrop of the psalm. And I think it's inspired and it's a part of what we ought to read when we read the psalms. Well, David tells us a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, 
well, where does this take us? This points us back to 2 Samuel. And if you go back to 2 Samuel 3 through 15, 3 through 18, you'll get the entire canvas of what's happening. And so what happened in 2 Samuel 3? It opens up. It basically says that David got six kids, right? And guess what? He got six different baby mothers. Now, let that kind of wash over you. Just, just that right there, right? Six different sons and then six different mothers of the son. And so it reads as if you finna have some drama, right? This is, this is just, it's, it's just going to be hard, brother, right? And that's what it is, right? You, you sort of get into this web of emotion, right? So you have like David has a son with this wife and then a separate son with this wife and a separate son with this wife. And then this son over here has the same father of David, but a different mother. And then this son over here has a sister. And so this brother over here, who is David's biological brother, who's a half brother to this brother, has a sister that's not his sister. You see, what it's, see what's going on? And so this brother over here wants this brother's sister, but it's not his sister. And her name is Tamar. And so David, uh, uh, Amnon, who's the oldest, he desires her. And so he, he actually forces himself and tricks her into uh, laying with him. And to add sort of just trouble on top of that, she says, hey, just marry me. Just marry me. Take me to be your wife. And this is fine. And he refuses. It says that he hates her. And at that point, he loathes her. Now, here's a problem, right? You're brothers. But this sister got a big brother. And that big brother is this dude named Absalom. And so notice what the Bible says about David. It says that because Am Amnon was the guy who slept with Tamar, Absalom's sister, he was the oldest. And it says because he was the oldest, David did nothing about it. Now, guess who's going to do something about it, though? Her big brother. And you know what he does? He plots and schemes and he waits Two years. And you know what he does? He kills him. He avenges his own sister's betrayal. And guess what happens? David's kingdom is starting to fracture. Absalom runs and he flees and he gets out of Dodge, right? And it says that David's heart broke. It broke for his son. It broke for his family. It broke for his own son who murdered his other son. Amnon go, I mean, Absalom goes off and then years pass and then he comes back in. He gets back in the king's graces, but the injury is already there. And so Absalom has to sort of live in a separate part of the house. Well, guess what? He's not done. You see what he did with his older brother? He stayed in the recesses. He plotted. He's scheming. He tricked the other brothers to invite him. And then he murdered him in cold blood. He is doing the same thing with David. He starts to lay in the cut, right? He starts to kind of move in silence. And what he does is, is whenever David's people were come to get advice from David, he would intersect them and meet them at the gates. And rather than the kingdom get the face of the king, guess who they let, guess who started to settle their disputes? It was Absalom. And then Absalom started to say, only if I were your king, you wouldn't even need to come here. My father's not doing a good job. And he did this year after year after year. And guess who knew nothing about it? David. 
And so all of a sudden, Absalom took his time to sow seeds of doubt. And the scriptures actually say Absalom stole. It, it uses the same language from thou shalt not steal. It says he stole the hearts of Israel from David. And then the day has come. Absalom is going to strike. Everything he's been doing in the recesses comes to light. He says, on the sound of this trumpet, I want you all to say Absalom is king. That's the backdrop to the passage. David is like, where in the world did this fight come from? And Absalom says, I'm bringing the heat. I'm bringing the thunder, right? And he has thousands of men who are with him. Now, some of this is, is greed and envy and jealousy. Some of this, right, though, is David, right? You got to remember uh, when David turned a blind eye to what his son Amnon did, you got to remember a couple chapters before that, David did the same thing. When he took Bathsheba to be his wife, he took her, humiliated her, forced himself upon her, and then had her husband killed. And so it makes sense that when you get a few chapters later, when his oldest son does the same thing, it's not just because he is old, right? How can David now come in and condemn his own son for doing what you saw your daddy do? And so the Lord says to, through the prophet Nathan, I will be raised against you. He says the sword will, the sword will never leave your kingdom. He says, he says that, that a, a, your neighbor will take your women and will, will insult them in the front of all of Israel. And you know who did exactly that? Absalom. He went and got all of David's concubines and took them in front of all of Israel and laid with them all. That was an insult. And so David is not just running from Absalom, right? He's also running from the consequences of his own actions. He did this. Now, I don't know if you've seen Black Panther. If you haven't by now, you, you know, you should, right? <laughs> You've seen it. I've seen it about five times, dude. But you, you remember the scene? You remember the opening scene when Killmonger's dad, we don't know, but he's killed at the beginning. And you, they, there's this kid who is just sort of left in L.A. or left in Oakland. And this kid sort of grows up. And then, then there's this other stuff happening over here in Wakanda that this new king is in store. And, and all of a sudden, Killmonger shows up. And then you start to piece it together that Killmonger is bitter. Killmonger is ready to bring the heat because you murdered my dad and, and the throne of Wakanda did it. And so when he shows up, he's like, look, we don't have to fight tomorrow. We can fight right now. I've been training my whole life for this. That's the backdrop to this story. That Killmonger's rise, it's not just bitter and envy. It's also injustice. That was wrong. And so when T'Challa is new king, the fight finds him. He's not looking for it. His kingdom was corrupt. And now the consequences have caught up with him. That's the backdrop to this passage. That David is being pursued. The fight has found him. Now, most of us will probably not be in that situation. At least I hope that your son does not get 20,000 troops and line around your house, right, to, to take your life, right? That, that, so one guy named Tremper Longman, 
He says, this is what makes the Psalms both beautiful and also difficult. Difficult in the sense that we really do have to wrestle with bringing this into our context. Now, here's how a lot of people will do it, and this isn't wrong, and I actually think there are certain Psalms where you have to do it, right? It's messianic, where we could say Jesus, right? We could say Jesus is saying, how many are my foes? That many are rising against me. Many are saying of his soul that there is no salvation. Like we could insert Jesus and say, yes, this is Jesus, right? Jesus experienced this of epic proportions when he is crucified on the cross and betrayed. And that would work and that would be true but what Longman says is if we overdo that, then we're removing the beauty of the Psalms. We have to look at it in its context and then say, okay, I might not have 20,000 people trying to take my life, but I do have a son who hates me. I do have a son or daughter and we're estranged. And I know what it feels like to have distance there. We know what it's like to be surprised by trouble to be caught off guard. You go to the doctor and you think your bill of health will be clean and there's a spot there and he wants to test that, right? That when you came there that morning, you had your whole day planned out. I'm gonna go to the doctor, I'm gonna go get me something to eat, I'm gonna go work out, I'm gonna go to the grocery store. And all of a sudden, all those three little words, or however many words it is, something worries me, right? And right there, it's at your door. Or what about a spouse that you think the marriage is strong and vibrant and all of a sudden this spouse finally comes out. I don't know if I can do this anymore. What, if it, what, if, what, what, what is it like when you walk into your job and you think you have security and all of a sudden your manager calls a meeting and it's not just to catch up. You have to find another job and figure out a way to make ends meet. This is what's behind the passage, right? And it could also be spiritual. Remember, Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And so all these fightings that you see in the Old Testament, Paul also would say that, hey, we're not fighting with wars and shields and spears anymore. But the main warfare for the believer now is in the demonic. It's in the heavenly places. And so your world might be great. And all of a sudden the, the demonic starts to get on you. Right. And these thoughts from nowhere, they start to kind of consume you. And, and you weren't looking for it. The fight finds you and you're tempted, right? That the fight shows up or it could really be like David, that David is not innocent here, that these are his consequences that he did way back when. And now they're catching back up. Can't we relate to that? The things that we used to do, how they still kind of show up and cause us harm and, and heartache. See, beloved, this is the beauty of the Psalms that were actually commanded and invited to say by the power of the spirit, understanding the context of it. We can have the Holy Spirit empowered imagination. To say, Lord, your spirit inspired this, your spirit put this in here and I am yours. And therefore, somehow, some way this is relevant. And so when was the last time you felt attacked? caught off guard, surprised by trouble. The last time trouble came to bully you, when did your prior sins come back to haunt you? 
welcome to the Psalms. The second thing we see in the text is the fear that can overwhelm you. That what kind of emotional toll did this take on David? Remember what Calvin said a few weeks ago when we talked about it, that, 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 that this is the, the Psalms are like this emotional mirror that all believers should look at and we should see congruency, that we should look at these passages and we have the freedom to say, man, what does that feel like? Well, what did this do to David? It says that he fled town. Now, why would you flee? Because you're afraid. He doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to lose the kingdom. He doesn't want to lose the throne. And think about it. Fleeing is a natural response to fear. That, that one, uh, psych one doctor in the 1920s, he sort of became famous for the fight or flight mechanisms. And he basically says that, hey, when we are exposed to something that will cause us fear or harm, that subconsciously and neurotically and in your brain and physiologically, certain things just happen and you don't have to think about it, right? It's fight or flight. If I feel like I can take you and you scare me and you're a threat, then buddy, we're going to fight, right? But if I feel like I cannot win, then I'm going to flee, right? It's human nature. You don't have to think about it. And that's what's happening in the text. Like David is overwhelmed. There are, are, are maybe 20,000 people coming for him. That's not a fight that he can win. He knows the odds. Like, I can't do this. I'm caught off guard. I'm under man. There is no way for me to engage this threat right now. And so what does David do? He runs. In 2 Samuel 15, verse 14, it says, Then David said to all of his servants who were with him, Arise, let us quickly go, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. You hear it in his voice? He's commanding his little peon army, like, man, we got to go. Like, he's not playing. Not just us, the whole city. Do you see the power he has? His comfort and his dreams and plans have been interrupted. His dream of being king is turning into a nightmare. What do we do with this? The second key to unpacking the Psalms is emotional congruency. Here's what I mean, right? You have to say, okay, fear is fear. That I might not have 20,000 coming after me. But if I'm honest, I'm afraid when the doctor says that it's cancer. I might not have 20,000 coming after me, but, you know, I'm afraid of my child not having a heartbeat. Right. I might not have 20,000 coming after me, but this call that this kid just got murdered. I'm afraid to go to the funeral home to see him. I'm afraid to walk into the house of mourning. You may not have 20,000 coming after you, but I'm afraid of what it means to do life without my spouse. You may not have 20,000 coming after you, but I'm afraid because I don't know. His world is being rocked. And if you live long enough, you and I will be blindsided by trouble and by harm. And in that moment, if you could freeze time and just freeze it for a moment, you could smell and see and feel fear. If you could stop it for a moment. And if you're really, really honest, fear has the power to control you. 
You panic. You worry. We fret. We cry. We're paralyzed. We can't think, even do our work because we're worried about our health. We can't love our kids because we're worried about the one that's not making it. We can't be present in meetings because we're worried about the funeral that we have to do. The fear is powerful. Fear can overwhelm us and paralyze us. And what we see, it's, it's happening, right? It's happening to David. The third thing is I think we should see in this text is learning to let our fear cause us to flee to the one who is faithful. You got to see that he's running because he's afraid. He's outmatched. He's outnumbered. And this same fear that makes him run. You got to think about the imagery here because I don't think David is sort of pulling a Forrest Gump. You know, Forrest Gump, you seen the movie? Just run, Forrest, run. And he's just kind of running, doesn't know where he's running or why he's running. He just kind of keeps running until there is nowhere to run anymore aimlessly. That when you read this David fleeing, you have to know that that is not how he's running. So he's running from something, right? But the question that I think we have to ask by faith is, well, where is he running? And what is he running to? And when you look at this story in its context, we know exactly where David ran. We know in 2 Samuel 15 that David ran up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He was weeping as he went barefoot with his head covered and all the people who were with him covered their heads and they went up weeping as they went. Well, why would he go up to the Mount of Olives? This isn't just a military strategy to get out of the valley to have higher ground than your enemies. That you know what was happening on the top of the mountain? Do you know what was at the summit of the mountain? He tells us while David was coming to the summit where God was worshiped. Now, connect the dots. This fear, right? This fear that he's running from, from a man and from these consequences, he's running somewhere. He's running to the Mount of Olives, to the place where God's glory dwelled. And so you could say it this other way. This fear of man is causing him to flee to the one who is ever faithful. You see how it's working? He's running from him, but running from him is making him run to the one who is faithful. And that's why in our verse it says, but you, oh, no, in verse four, I cried out to the Lord and he answered me from where? His holy hill, which is exactly where I'm running to right now. His holy hill. I will dwell in the shelter of the Almighty. He will be my refuge. And so notice David isn't taking matters into his own hand. He isn't sort of down here saying, beating his chest up, let's do it. You ready to do it? No, it's actually showing a deep, beautiful humility. You know what? And it's, I would argue that it's actually strength as well. See, I think fear can make us be bravado and kind of make us sort of stick our chest out like I can do it or it can kind of punk us a little bit and just make us kind of wimps and, and we, we're sort of imprisoned to it. And David's, the way he's handling this is not either. That this is a quiet fear. There is action. He's moving towards the Lord. And so there is strength and humility mixed in that posture. And notice what happens. What does he do in verse three? But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and a lifter of my head. Now, I want to make the case to you that Everything that we saw in Psalm 1, blessed is the man 
who meditates on the law of the Lord. He meditates day and night that everything you see in Deuteronomy 17, when God tells Israel, you got to listen to this right here in Deuteronomy 17. When you have a king who sits on the throne, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of my law, which is approved by Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days in his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord. You, you hear what's happening? What would David have had to do as a king? He would have had to keep this law with him. He would have had to write his own copy that the, that the Levites would approve. He would have to do this daily. Why? So that he would not be lifted up above his people and so that he would keep a constant fear of the Lord. And I want to argue in that moment, yes, he is afraid for his life. But I think that what's happening here is the word of God is shaping and so when he cries out to the Lord, none of this is original. None of this. Now, David has some beautiful things to say about the Lord that he unpacks in some later Psalms. But nothing here he says about the Lord is original to David. In other words, these attributes that David sort of, they call God to be who you are. They are not unique to David. David has heard them somewhere else. Look at it. The Lord is my shield. You know who said that? God said that to Abraham in Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. And you know what happened right after that? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And guess who he pulled out? Abraham's nephew, Lot. You know what happened right after that? Abraham's wife was taken by an evil king. And the Lord went to that evil king in a dream and says, if you touch his wife, you're a dead man. So, they, so you, you get the image, this image of a shield, right? That this, this trouble is coming and the Lord tells Abraham, do not worry what you are about to go through. I'm a shield for you. It's not a promise that you won't be injured in life. It's not a promise that, that, that evil won't come around you, but it is a promise that this shield will come up and you will be protected eternally by the sovereign might and strength of your God. This is not a promise for an easy life. It's a promise that when things get hard, your Lord will step up and be a defender for you. My son and I played this, this, this game called God of War. And uh, in the first service, I saw I had some God of War fanatics, so I could see it in their eyes, right? They kind of lifted up. But it's on the PS4, and, and you're this, like, you're this, this fighter. And he starts out, you kind of have to work your way up and build his skills. And so when we're playing, right, like I'm big on, I want to do all the offensive maneuverings. Like he got like a hundred ways he can kill you. He can kind of roll on the ground, get up and do this kind of mighty tomahawk thing. He can do all, he can throw his ax and it'll kind of chop your head up. Yeah. It's like, it, it's really good though. It's not, it's not like bad, you know. But here's the thing. As you play it, like the competition gets like really intense. And so when we're buying stuff, because you get to go see these little men and upgrade your, your character. And so we're buying like a bigger sword and we're buying a bigger axe. We're buying uh, an axe made out of a heavier material. We're buying sort of sk extra skill sets you can do. Here's what happens in the game. At some point, I don't care how much you offense your dude, he's going to fight these beasts that will get their blows on you. And so we're getting hammered, right? We're getting hammered. I'm like, man, what is wrong? And he's like, Dad, we got to upgrade the shield. And I'm like, man, I don't want to use no shield, right? 
you cannot play the game without a shield. You get to a point that you have to have a shield because the, you, you will take blows. And so now we're like, okay, we got to upgrade the shield. It's so boring, right? A shield. And then, so you got to fight, right, with your right hand and your right buttons. And then every now and again, you got to kind of hit the left one button, and that pulls your shield up, right? And then you fight some more, and you got to pull your shield up. Look, that's what David is saying, right? That as a believer, you have something in your artillery. And it's a shield. The Lord will protect you. You will live long enough, and I promise you, you cannot out faith. And be holy enough to avoid the fights that will find you. And the Lord says, when those moments come, I'm going to be your shield. Notice what else he says. The Lord is my glory. In the Hebrew, it's this word kavod, which I think it kind of sounds like what it means. Like it just means heavy, right? The Lord, Lord you're, you know, you're my heaviness. Now, God kind of uses this of himself, right? If you want to see it. Look at Exodus, right? I think that is the, the quintessential book to read on the glory of the Lord. You do know the reason the Lord brings the fight to Pharaoh in Egypt is because Pharaoh thinks he has more weight than the Lord. Pharaoh thinks his kavod is bigger than the Lord's. Pharaoh thinks that he runs the earth and the Lord says, no, dude, you don't. I control the, the earth and the stars and the gnats and the frogs and the water and light. And if I say it will be darkness over here where you are and light over here in Goshen, the sun and all things I created will listen to me. And so it's this real battle of who has the most weight. Now, here's the beautiful thing that when God brings them out, it says that the kavod, the glory of the Lord, it rested on the mountain that Israel could see and hear and feel that you are dealing with a weighty God. I'm not trifling. I'm weighty. I have weight. I'm heavy. And notice what it says in Exodus 28, when garments are made for Aaron, Aaron, your garments shall be made for kavod and for beauty. When Aaron's sons, you shall make them coats and sashes and caps for kavod, for glory and for beauty. What's happening there? The Lord God is sharing this with his servants. And it's not because his servants have done something right. It's because you're serving in my tabernacle. And you as a priest, you will walk around Israel when you are handling the things of the Lord. And there will be a weight about you. Now, when David died, you notice what it says in 2 Chronicles 29? He died at a good old age, full of days, riches, and honor, and kavod. Now, here's the thing. Why would David say, Lord, you're my glory? Because it's easy to think that because I'm king, and my kingdom is intact, and everything is going well, that I derive my importance from my success. And what David is saying Though everything crumble around me, I still have weight. I still matter because I find significance in you. David isn't making up these words. This stuff is from the Old Testament. And the last thing, the Lord is the lifter of my head. Where does that come from? That comes about 230 years before David. The first person to ever say this was Hannah. When Hannah cannot have children. 
when she cannot have children, she is the one who prays. The Lord raises the poor from the dust. Right there, same phrase. The Lord is one who raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. She could not have children. She was barren. She was mocked. She was lower than low. And what she says is no. You're a lifter of the head of your people. And the Lord did it. She conceived and she gave that son back to the Lord. We are learning, right? When David is, is, is wrestling with the identity of God, though there be 230 years, though there be thousands of years between what Abraham and David says, what we're learning is that our God doesn't change. He doesn't change, not with epoch in history, not with person, not with situation. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, beloved, when you and I are afraid and we are in Christ Jesus, you know what is true for us? The Lord is your shield. The Lord is your glory. The Lord is the one who will lift your head no matter what mankind says about you. Your identity is safe and secure because of Jesus. What I love about this text is that because when I'm afraid, I'm kind of a, a, a one off guy, right? I'm like, I'm like in my word, in my word. Or I'm kind of like, OK, I'm, all I'm going to do is kind of pray, right? And what you start to see is that these both things are happening. David has enough humility to pray, to fall on his face, to take off his shoes and to go as the king to the king of kings. And he also is going to the king knowing fully well who he's grappling with. He's not praying aimlessly, right? And he is not just storing up book knowledge about God, that both of these things are happening simultaneously in the moment of fear. I'm going to go to the Lord and I'm going to go to the Lord on his own terms, calling him to be who he has said he is out of his word. You see how it's working? Don't waste your fear, beloved. When cancer comes, Run to the Lord. When fear over provision, let us run to the Lord. When fear over a failed relationship, let us run to the Lord. That God has this weird thing, and I see it all in Scripture, where he kind of takes these emotions that we don't want to feel, and he says, no, that's exactly where you'll meet me, right there in it. Why would the scripture say it's better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting? You give me a choice on my best day and you tell me I can go watch the World Cup or come and do a funeral. You know where I want to go? I want to go see the World Cup face to face. I want to go into the house of celebration. And what the scripture is saying is, no, it's better to go into a house of mourning. Now, why? because the living will discern that this too is their end. You see what he says? Sorrow and grief will cut through this facade that you think you live under. And you gotta go into the house of mourning to see it. And it's the same thing for fear. We want to be self-protecting. We want to feel secure. But what God is saying, I work in fear.
If fear is what it takes to make you run to me, then you're safe right there. You're safer right there in my will, afraid, depending on me, crying out to me, than you are if everything around you was well. The Lord can hear your distinct cry like a nursing mother can discern her own child's voice, beloved. He can recognize your cry in a room of a million. And he says, I will come. There is new research in the area of fear. There's a lady by the name of Shelley Taylor, and she is challenging the 80 year old research. The 80 year old research done in 1920, uh, which would have been 80 years from when she started her research that advocated for fight or flight. This woman is advocating new research. She says, hey, we don't just fight and flight. You know what she says we also do? We tend and we befriend. And you know why she says that 80 year old data is wrong? Because 80% of, your, of, your, of the people and animals you looked at were male. She says, look, when you start to look at females and female animals who are in terrorizing situations, she says, we see two different things that your studies didn't pick up. That females, in their, when they're afraid, they tend to befriend and tend. And it makes sense, right? Watch, watch lady, lady lions, right? When there is this something that is, is bigger than them, they don't go at it alone. They're going to go find their other lionesses. She's going to recede to the back, and together they will tend and handle the thing. Here is what David is doing, beloved. In the middle of fighting and flighting, he believes that the Lord is his friend. I'm going to draw near to my friend, and my friend will tend to this problem with and for me. It's not a fight or flight, right? This is a tending and a befriending that's happening in the passage. And that is what God is saying to you, beloved. When you are afraid, come near to your friend. He'll fight with you and for you. You're not alone. Last point. Learning to let the Lord fight for us. You see the shift in the passage. In the beginning, David's gaze is upon how many are his foes. Look at how it ends. You will strike all my enemies. You will do it. You will break the teeth of the wicked. Notice whose salvation belongs to. Your blessings be on your people. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And here is one piece of homework I want to I put before you. I rarely do this. But sometime today, just go read 2 Samuel 18 and then thank the Holy Spirit later. Okay? Absalom is killed. He had this counselor named Ahithophel. He commits suicide. Absalom's men are killed. You know how Absalom dies? His hair. His hair gets caught in a tree. Come on, dude. <laughs> right? He gets caught up in a tree. And you got to understand what's happening in the book because they're talking about how beautiful and how big he is and the irony that this very thing you took pride and joy in would be what catches you in a tree. I hit the fail, this guy who's given Absalom counsel. David sends another dude in disguise to give him counsel. 
and Absalom chooses the David's dude's counsel, Ahithophel can't even live with himself. He goes and takes his own life. What about his soldiers? Listen to what it says. The forest devoured more men than the sword of David. You hear that? 20,000 went to war. David's servants defeated Absalom's men, but the forest devoured more men than the sword. You hear what David is saying? You can't make this stuff up. These trees came alive and the trees killed more men on Absalom's team than our own battle gear did. Absalom's hair is caught in a tree, right? So when you get in the later Psalms, when David talks about the glory of God in creation and the stars and the heavens and the moons, he knows very well that the Lord can bend this branch like two inches and it will chop off your head, dude, right? <laughs> he knows that the creation listens to God. And so he's not praising God for his creative powers in a vacuum. David experiences a, a forest. Wipe away his enemies. The Lord doesn't even have to get off the throne. That's so gangster. You got to just say that is right. It, that is just like. Beloved, I, I, I want us to believe this. That God treats you with grace and kindness, even in hard times. He might not bend trees out there and make them destroy your enemies. But what we do see is he works and he moves and he shakes things and he gives favor. He calms your fears. He gives you a new job. He brings you to glory with him if he does not heal your cancer. You learn what it's like to be single again, and the Lord is dear and precious. You grieve the loss of a kid, but you find joy in the purposes and plans of the Lord. He promises to be a blessing to his people, and it's not because you deserve it. It's because Jesus has won this favor for you. That God really does treat David as if his sins against Bathsheba were truly blotted out and remembered no more. You got to believe, beloved, he treats you the same way. So I'm going to close with this. Some of y'all know T.I., the rapper. What y'all don't know is he's married to a lady who used to sing in the uh, R&B group named Escape. And they had a song, Who Can You Run To, Right. Some of y'all know it. I saw, I saw it on your faces. Who can you run to? Right? I, I see my mama saying, don't do it, right? <laughs> hey, this passage says you got somebody to run to when you're afraid. You run to Jesus. He's there for you. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being a balm to our souls. I pray for those who are in moments of fear. Draw near and be a shield, be a fortress, be a lifter of their heads, be their glory. We pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.